Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey there, welcome back to Your Table's Ready. I'm your host, Carol Hadar. Today we're talking to James Walters, founder of Arabica. In the Levant, there's a zingy, lemony tasting herb called za'atar, and James likes to use it in unconventional ways. He puts it on lamb chops and courgettes, tomatoes, and basically anything but a manouche. A manouche is a flatbread that's baked in an oven, and that's typically where you'd find za'atar or cheese. But he even twists that by putting things like truffles and mushrooms on them. I guess that's the beauty of being a Westerner dabbling in a different culture's cuisine. You're not afraid to take risks. And his risks are delicious. James started his love affair with Middle Eastern cuisine 15 years ago by asking if he could make falafel at a Jordanian guy's stall in Borough Market. He since took over that business and blew it up. He's opened several stalls. He sells the products in retail. He's got the longest standing concession stand in Selfridge's Food Hall. He has two permanent restaurants, one in Borough and one that's just opened in King's Cross, Granary Square. Before we dive into James's incredible story, we're going to talk about the DIY Beiruti falafel kit that you can get from them during the lockdown. I'm Lebanese and I can confirm that it is fantastic. What I found really interesting was that the whole industry seemed to, at the same time, come up with a way to salvage their businesses by doing these DIY kits. Did you guys all have a meeting and decide together that that's what you guys were going to do? Or was it like one restaurant did it and then the rest just followed? No. So I think the first couple of weeks were panic, trying to close things down and look at cash flows and forecasts and work out how long we could survive for. And as we were waiting for varying government announcements and then furlough came and then it was trying to navigate what that looked like and what it included and what it didn't include and when people were furloughed and get all their furlough letters done and so there was this first like two or three weeks of just utter panic and confusion and then we had a couple of nice weeks worth of sun and just got the opportunity to sit back for a moment and have a couple of large gin and tonics mid mid afternoon one day and started to firstly what can we do to help other people so the first thing was well we've got the central production kitchen in Camberwell which we're lucky to have the layout is very different from a traditional central London or you know a restaurant where 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 real estate is at a premium and therefore kitchens are very tight hard spaces to kind of navigate and work through so how could we safely reactivate that unit with a select number of team members that kind of all sign up to behaving in a certain way so everyone was driving into work and so we started to do some charity meals with with hospitals we set up a funding page and we started to to do some meals and at the same time also supplying food for vulnerable Londoners through Plan Zero. And at the same time, I was like, well, okay, the kitchen is kind of running now. The first two weeks were really like, well, who can supply us? Suppliers were really panicking about their own cash flows because the bottom had fallen out of their businesses. So we were very quick to say, hey, look, if you can help us supply us, we'll pay you cash and delivery to give them that security because obviously they've got 30 days worth of debt. So it's like, okay, when are we going to be paid? And, and so then I just had that moment to sit and think. And I was like, well, wait a second. I started to have conversations with a couple of friends in the sector and talk to them about this idea of, well, what happens if we could give people their kind of Friday night meze fix looking at a model like Dabadrop, which is set up in Hackney by two ladies, um, one of them who is the partner of um, Miles Kirby from Caravan and Rene 
and I had friends that live in Hackney that were, had been using Dabba Drop for some time. So I was like, well, wait a second, why can't Arabica produce some food from the central production kitchen? Why can't I get in there and do this, this and this and, and start to test the waters with giving people a night off cooking? As I started to work through what that range looked like, that small consolidated range, I suddenly thought, wait a second, how much fun is making falafel at home? And then I just worked it through and I was like, falafel kit. It was a few drinks in. I always do my best thinking when I've had a few drinks. That's so good. Yeah, it's so true. I'm I'm so excited. I've just ordered my kit actually. So uh, let's let's go back to the beginning. So I mean, you've got two fantastic restaurants now, um, which we'll get to. But you started off in a market stall. But even before that, how did you start out? So I was kind of born into food in a weird kind of way, but at a very different end of the spectrum. And my grandfather opened Wimpy Bars in the sixties. Oh, cool! In South London, the first burger on a plate, and. And my father uh, worked in them as a teenager and then um, fell into kind of looking after them when my grandfather became ill. And so I grew up, I, I, you know, I spent some time doing VAT returns and doing some numbers on, on school holidays. And I worked in the wimpy bars when I was a kid on school holidays. And then later in my teens, after the BCSE crisis, my father pivoted and, and, and opened some pizza franchises and then I worked in those and but he never ever ever wanted me to get into catering at all he always said you'll never make money you'll always earn it it will be hard graft but I started cooking you know I just happened to love cooking when I was a child and I started cooking when I was about eight years old just fell in love with it and you know I was fortunate enough in the 80s to to have some European holidays and I loved the food markets and loved all those incredible fresh fruit and vegetable displays. And it, it was just a calling. So I wanted to go to catering college when I left school. I was, uh, I was a naughty boy at school. Um, and my father didn't want me to go. And he really, really, he was basically like, you know, I'm not, I'm not supporting you to go down that route. So I didn't. I only have GCSEs. I never did my A-levels. I fell out of college. I never did a degree. And then ducked and dived and and then I came back from traveling in my late late teens and uh, picked up a broadsheet and I went and got a job at Bluebird Cafe in in the King's Road and did about five months there yeah I I didn't really deal with the hierarchy very well being told what to do so in the end I kind of I walked out of Bluebird and I went and had a very short stint at a fine dining restaurant Um, uh, that was like uh, 12 hours I think I did one shift and was like this is not for me And then by chance, a while later, I was on another travel at some point. I ended up sharing a dorm with a with a lovely couple that were older than me. I was in my like early 20s at this point. And they were from Broccoli in southeast London. And they said that they'd just been to this incredible food market in in Borough that had just started on like a twice a month. It was like every two weeks or something like that. And we swapped numbers. They were going off and I was going back to London at some point. And we said, when you guys are back, let's let's all hook up. So we we met up one morning, early doors on a Saturday, and we walked around the market. And when we walked around the market, I stumbled across this Middle Eastern stall that was just one guy standing there with like a Hessian cloth thrown over the table and like a very, very basic range of meze, like five or six hummus, smoked aubergine, tabbouleh, and a couple of like little jars and one flavored oil and a couple of spices, and we started chatting. And I tasted the Zata, and I was like, I could taste this citrusy, lemony thing. 
and I was kind of becoming quite inquisitive and I was asking him like what, what's in this and he, he was super cagey you know outside of maybe you know Edgware Road nobody had really seen or heard or tasted of Zata unless they'd been traveling in the Middle East but we ended up talking for about half an hour and we exchanged numbers and then I started to go to the food market every week um and buy food and and he still was always busy and I and I'd wave from a distance and I kept his number and I just called him one day and I said what are you up to at the end of the market and he said well we all go to this we all go to the wheat chief afterwards and I said hey let me um can I come down and help you pack up the store and he said yeah yeah for sure so I met him there about 40 minutes before the market finished and I helped pack down the stall and we went for a drink and we started to hang out every week and build this friendship. And I, and I said, listen, I, you know, I'd love, I love the market. I'm, I'm happy just to come down and work on Saturdays for nothing. Like I just want to get involved and be part of this community. And this is kind of bearing in mind that I grew up at a time when I saw small local shops beginning to close down. I saw the fishmongers, the butchers, the greengrocers all disappearing as supermarkets began to extend their operating hours into Sunday trading and off the back of the kind of naked chef explosion, extend their ranges and stock something in their herb section other than curly parsley. Because there was a time when it was literally just curly parsley. So when I discovered Borough, it was like uh, an awakening for me. It was somewhere I felt at home. I'd felt like I'd always, I'd been born, I'd been, I'd popped out on the wrong continent and suddenly I'd found my people and my place. And so I was happy to go down there and be part of it all. And then like a few months in, Jad said, hey, listen, let's work out. I'll, I'll teach you how to make falafel. And we developed a recipe together. And he said, and you can start selling falafel on the stool on Saturdays and you keep the money you make from the falafel and I will keep all the other. And when they match, we'll will be partners. Wow. So I went and bought a ham mincer from Edgware Road and I went and got, you know, enough falafel to make, you know, a couple of kilo or something of mix. And I turned up with a saucepan and a slotted spoon and my mix and, and some garnishes and whatnot. And within an hour I'd sold everything. And I remember calling my father. I, I was on my I was on my knees at this point. I'd kind of overspent. I maxed out all my credit cards traveling and was was in a real old pickle. I was down and out, but not, not quite out, but just having a rough time of it. I remember calling my dad and say, I've made like 60 pounds. And he was like, well done. I went straight down to Argos and I bought one fryer. And the next week... Um, I made like five kilo and I sold out in an hour and a half. And the story goes on to the point when I was buying like plastic bottles, like water or whatever, Coke. I was making, I'm, I fudge myself together a funnel. So because the hopper in these small handheld mincers is really small, you can only drop a few chickpeas in at a time. So it would take me hours to, to mince all these chickpeas. So I fashioned this homemade funnel so that I could put a couple of kilos worth in and then just, you know, grind away. And the story goes on. So each week was like, oh, I'm going to buy a second fryer. Slowly, um, the business built up and the falafel became, you know, one of, I, at that point, one of the iconic street food offers of Borough Market before that whole scene erupted before that whole before all of those kind of hot food offers were coined as street food even though street food's been around for 
you know, thousands of years, that term hadn't been necessarily used in London. And we, we used to have a queue of, you know, 30, 40 people on a Friday and Saturday uh, queuing up for these raps. Oh, that's awesome. So you and Jad became partners. And how, how many years did you do this the stall partner thing? Well, then I wanted to kind of grow the business and I started to explore other market opportunities. And we started to kind of, you know, at one point we had maybe three, four or five, four, four or five market stalls in different locations around London. And then not long after that, uh, an opportunity came up. Somebody told us about um, a cafe in Notting Hill area, kind of just off Labrick Grove that was coming up that we could grab in like a, uh, I think it was bus space studios. It was off of Conland street. And so we, we opened this restaurant on, um, seven grand. I borrowed from my dad, maxed out some credit cards and Jad and I built the whole place. So we made all the tables, the chairs, the bar. I did the plumbing, the electric, and we managed to get a good deal on a little extract. We, we hired, we, we did leasing on all the equipment for the kitchen. We opened this little cafe and so we produced food for the market stores. And then we, we opened for a, you know, a few hours. It was like the laziest restaurant in London. It was, it was this little moment when we were working in the markets and we were, we were having fun. I was like in my mid twenties. And so we were trying to strike the live work life balance at that time. And the cafe wasn't really washing its face. And I, and I'd always wanted to kind of open a restaurant. And so we switched the hours. We decided to open five until 10, like Tuesday to Saturday. And we did uh, more of an evening offer and it started to take off. Like we were really busy Thursday, Friday and Saturdays, but Tuesdays and Wednesdays were tough. And we were in a, the most backstreet location you could imagine. We did that for a couple of years and we got some great write-ups at the time from like Joe Rayner, Matthew Fort, Fame Ashley gave us a mention. But after a couple of years, um, we had built up some quite significant debts and we needed a way out. So I then decided to run, we, we, were, we were in the carnival area. So I think we owed like, but collectively, we probably owed about £30,000 worth of money to some of the suppliers that we had relationships in Borough Market, whether that be wine or beer or some vegetables. So I went out one night in this little van that we had, and I basically went and picked up loads of wooden pallets, and I fashioned together a bar outside. And we went down to Macro and bought a shit ton of Red Stripe, and I made like vodka jellies and God knows what. And we made enough in a weekend to clear off all our debts. What? Yeah, I, <laughs> it got so crazy that on the... Oh, because this was carnival. Yeah, we were opposite the San Japanza sound system, which was a really, these guys used to come and, and pay the owners of this cafe on the years prior to take the space outside to the bar. And I refused. I said, sorry, guys, we're going to run our own bar, which infuriated them. But I had to do it. And we cleaned up. I mean, it got so crazy. The like, Monday at like two o'clock, we'd sold, we'd already like restocked once or twice. I ended up just starting to pour off and use all the stock that we had left in the restaurant. I was selling everything. Oh, like, you must have been so happy. I would, have sold my, I would have sold anyone at that point. I was like, clear, <laughs> yeah. our, clear our balance sheet off. And so at the end of the weekend, I had enough to honor all my payments to people that I had these relationships at the market. And then weirdly, like a couple of days later, some local guys rocked up and said, uh, we'd like to take the space off you. And so they gave us a, a small amount of key money. And, and we vacated the space like about three weeks later. And so we came out, our relationship had taken a bit of a hammering, but we came out financially like just about intact. 
with a few bruises, scrapes, and also some fun evenings um, for memories. And that's when we we said, hey, listen, what we realized during that whole point is a lot of the ingredients that we relied upon to make some of our food, we couldn't really get some of the quality that we wanted. We were dealing with larger importers who were bringing in a kind of medium grade product. And so we then went on an adventure. So I started to travel um, to Jordan and different places around the Middle East and try and source um, products from small cooperatives and then bring them back to London. And that's when we kind of started to more formally repackage and create our range of ingredients that we have still today. So what, what, once you sold the cafe, did you go back to the market? I mean, what, what happened? Like what, at what point did you get into Selfridges and, and, had, and then we still had the markets and um, that was like 2004 ish. And then, uh, we still had the market store and then bizarrely when Whole Foods bought Fresh and Wild, I need to be careful what I say now, uh, they kind of landed and were like, okay, we're going to take over the Barker building and open this incredible food store. And they did. But they went and basically found some Middle Eastern chefs and stuff and then tried to do what they do in the States. They realized they needed some help and support. And so they reached out to us one Saturday at the market and said, hey, we're opening the Barker building in a few weeks and we really need some help. And so we we jumped in and we we helped them and we started supplying them some food. But we weren't really match fit at that point. We weren't really ready. So we did this kind of thing for about two months, two and a half months, and and learned a lot, um, but decided it wasn't right for us at that moment. It gave us our first taster of what we would need to do if we were wanting to work with, kind of step up our game, ultimately. And so we started to work on that. And then we went and did a food show uh, with Real Food at Earl's Court. And at that show, we we, we launched our first version of the arabica branding with the old camel and quite um, a medicinal kind of look around all the products it was quite when i look back at it it was it was very lo-fi but it served its purpose for a while but we met loads of great people at that show we met selfridges we met harrods we had a ton load of inquiries about how we would um if we wanted to supply our fresh meze into smaller delis and retailers and we we started the dialogue with Selfridges. And I think about a year later, after doing a tasting with you inventors, um, who's now the CEO of Fortnum's and as, as still to this day is in, incredibly uh, supportive towards Arabica. And he, he did the tasting. And, and about a year later, after we, we crunched through the, the financials, we, we opened in Selfridges and we're still there today trading. So I think we're one of the longest standing concession partners in the London Food Hall. We've been there, I think, 12 or 13 years now. That's awesome. I guess you hired people when, when you opened Selfridges. So you weren't like doing all of these things yourselves. We were doing quite a lot for a long time. <laughs> um, but yeah, we did have some help along the way. Absolutely. Um, but yeah, we were we were slowly growing, but very much I'm very much self-taught. Like everything has been learning on the go. And so when I look back at the journey now and look at some of the people that we've worked with and thought, wow, I did all of that feel immensely grateful that that we've dibbled and dabbled in so many different parts of that sector so I feel quite rounded in my experience yeah so then at what stage did you change the branding did you have to hire people in for that did you just stick with Arabica because that's what the stall was called before it was called Arabica Food and Spice and we just we just resimplified it to Arabica London last year but I've been working with a company called Here Design for a number of years I first reached out to Kaz. I knew that she'd 
she was close friends with the guys from Moro and she'd done all their cookbooks and she'd done Ottolenghi's branding and there were several other brands that I were, was aware of who's you know who was very fun I, I thought she was amazing basically so I reached out to Kaz and she we got into long talks for quite a while and we went through various reiterations of what Arabica could look like and then we launched them at various stages we first launched it we first rebranded when we opened Arabica Bar and Kitchen in Borough Market in 2015 it had Arabica and also had Arabica in Arabic and we decided to just step back from that when we opened King's Cross and we lost the the Arabic writing out of the brand. And some people are upset that that kind of went, but I just wanted to just clean things up very slightly. Did, did you open the restaurant with Jad or did you open it on your own? And did you guys, did you self-fund or did you have to apply for funding? No, so Jad actually left the country. Um, he went to Greece in about 2008. Yeah, he took a backseat Um and I, I took the helm of the good ship Arabica for the last 10, 12 years. And then in answer to your second question, yeah, the first restaurant Arabica, uh, both restaurants actually, uh, were both self-funded. So the first restaurant was bank funded. So I borrowed money from the bank and invested savings that we'd made over a number of years and then repaid all of that off and then just reopened King's Cross, which was um, self-funded yet again. Fantastic. I mean, that's that's incredible to go from making £60 selling falafel to being able to save up and then borrow that much. And it's paid off. That's incredible. Paid off, but I'm slightly, um, <laughs> I'm breaking myself at the moment because I'm I slightly overextended when I opened King's Cross and perfectly guaranteed some money on my home. So, uh, ah. so um, uncertain times at the moment, but I'm trying to keep a brave face on them and uh, try and fight my way through it. Oh, yeah. I mean, King's Cross was a great shout. I mean, of course, before lockdown, but I'm sure, I, I mean, I'm sure there'll be a way where the government helps somehow, some sort of relief. We'll, we shall see. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask also about the interior, because they're quite different at both. Did you work with a company to kind of design the interior? And then what made you change so much for King's Cross? Uh, Borough. Borough's in a, a market location, in a railway arch. When we took over that site, there were a few underlying issues that we hadn't foreseen with the site when we took it over. It started to eat into our budget. And so by the time we got to the kind of aesthetical standpoint, it was always planned to be a little bit more rough and ready. We wanted to expose the brickwork and it was very much a found space. So we just wanted to dress it slightly. But also it was very much driven by what we had left to play with. But I'd always been into the kind of 60s. And when we did the rebrand, it was always around a kind of a celebration of Beirut in the 60s and its golden era when it was it was the Paris of the East. So that's the kind of reference point with some of the kind of mid-century furniture and the old map on the wall. And then when we took King's Cross, it was a very different space. It was a brand new, a very, very expensive brand new building built by a famous Japanese designer. The landlords wanted us to, you know, the landlords were looking for a cleaner look, but also I had started conversations with Tyeth from Gundry and Ducker and we we wanted to we wanted to play well, I wanted to continue the theme of the kind of 60s reference point so the interior of King's Cross is influenced by mid-century design in post-war universities and the idea was to create the common room I kind of look at King's Cross as this new campus in London and so the the design was kind of influenced by like sorry, I think uh, one of the one of the pictures that I remember in the mood boards was like 
the common room of Sussex University. So it's lots of wood, lots of warm woods. You've got the quarry tiles on the floor. So you've got those references back to that period, like with the Barbican Centre. And so we were just trying to keep some sort of a 60s-ish reference point, but also just make it more in keeping with the space and warm up the building that we were we were within, essentially. Yeah. And you also changed the menu quite a bit. Yeah, we tweaked the menu because I wanted... I, I was like, do we create another restaurant with another website, with another name, with another this, another set of cards, or do we try and pull all of our collateral? And so I took the decision to keep the name, but I thought, how do I differentiate? And that was by, I guess, making 50% of the menu different from the original site so that somebody that came to Borough Market and enjoyed what we did there might think, well, let's try the King's Cross branch out rather than it feeling like a cookie cutter rollout model. Yeah. yeah. You know, I, that's never really excited me. The idea of having everything the same. Yeah. You didn't want a franchise. You just wanted to open a, like a, a slightly different Actually, Yeah. Place. I just wanted to tweak it, but without having to pay a designer to redo all of the collateral and have another separate website to manage and another set of business cards, A4 cards, stationary I was like how can I be smarter like I already had a very complex business model with market stores and selfridges and an online shop and every part of the business was selling similar types of food but in slightly different formats it was already a very complex business I thought why do I need to add another another name so that was the idea and and I guess now COVID-19 has given me time to sit and actually think about how we're going to need to simplify the business further come out the other side of this so it's likely that we're going to have to tweak a little bit of what we're doing across the ball to simplify our model so it's more streamlined and therefore more profitable because we we just need to simplify things yeah yeah fair enough um if you were to give some advice to an aspiring entrepreneur let's say once lockdown's finished and you know they've got an idea to open their own business what would be some advice you could give to them i mean what were some of the bumps maybe you hit along the way oh goodness me i'm <laughs> not very well prepared for this i listened to the podcast that you did with uh, james elliott of pizza pilgrims the other week last night like midnight and and i was like yeah. oh god that's such a great in you know it's like oh god i'm not really uh, i'm gonna have to really get myself um uh, for this chat and upbeat for tomorrow because i just re read a 33 page document that made me want to go and throw myself out the first floor windows like how are we going to reopen the restaurants i'm not sure at the moment i don't know what the answer to that aspiring um entrepreneur I was listening to what james said last night uh last night which he 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 took a slightly different route and he he took backing early on because he felt that it gave him more confidence to take more risks with somebody else's money and I, I was like oh, I'm not sure if our investor would like to hear that I think the investors kind of investors I've always talked to you know or flirted with in the past have always like wanted you to put a fair amount of money in yourself so that you are you feel a bit of the pain and so that when you're making decisions you're because I think if you're it's easy to be bolshy when you're playing with someone else's money personally but I think striking a balance between the two, I think you do need to take risks. Yeah, you got to suck it and see. I've, I've made money and I've lost money. I think you just need to do your risk profiling and be comfortable. A bit like when you do an investment or a pension, you need to be accepting that things could go up and they could go down. And as long as you can afford to lose the amount at stake, then I think you need to take a balanced risk. So you need to, to like test the waters. If you're too safe, you will never take any risks and you'll never find out what could have been. 
Um, but at the same time, if you're reckless, you'll burn through cash and have nothing. You need to take gentle steps, but definitely got to take a few risks. Be confident. And also, don't ask too many people. Have one or two trusted um, people that will give you balanced points of view. I think the minute you start, the minute you have an idea and you ask way too many people, you get too many opinions and it starts to cloud your judgment and your vision. You, and before you know it, you've kind of said your original idea and it's lost its meaning. Like washing yeah. out all of the strength of your original, like if you come up, you've written something down that you, you're excited about. So I always have lots of drinks. In the old days, it would have been other things as well, but I uh, lots of drinks and then I write things down and then I revisit them at different times of the day over the following days and I start to scratch out things that were, oh, that, you know, what was I thinking? That was way too, you know, shouldn't have had that <laughs> shot of mezcal. I should have just stopped there. But I find that I've written stuff down that's in a, a moment of like confidence or lucid thoughts and then I revisit them and I start to replay them through at quieter times of day or early morning when I've got no distractions, the phone's not ringing, it's 5 a.m., sit down, super quiet, no distractions, and I just work through them. Um yeah yeah what are your some of your favorite dishes across the two sites whoa well one of the things is a, it's 38 dishes um i'm really excited about the the soft serve that we did at king's cross um the everything pistachio which is milk soft serve which is kind of the whole soft serve thing is playing back to my when i was first exposed to a carpeggiani soft serve machine you know as a child in the wimpy bars oh yeah and my favorite dessert was the brown derby which was this deep fried donut with um, obviously a really crap pre-pack pasteurized mix that was put into the machines because that was what was happening then, you know, you ate the mix, <laughs> yeah. but it was like it was soft serve on a, on a, on a donut. So it's like deep fried, sugary, lovely, creamy ice cream. And then this, you know, synthetic tasting chocolate sauce and broken bits of hazelnut. And so I have such fond memories of all those desserts and the, you know, banana split and the knickerbocker glory i wanted to create a, a range of desserts harking back to my childhood so we did the everything pistachio which was like bits of pistachio baklava crumbled in the bottom of a glass with soft serve with a pistachio cream you know basically pistachio paste and then bits of pistachio turkish delight and then we did a wow. we did a spin on a uh, sweet the brown derby which was like a sweet baked manouche which was a a bread that we made in our oven with soft serve and date molasses and crumbled walnuts. So there, there, and the, and then I also did like a Middle Eastern affogato. So it was Turkish coffee with cardamom honeycomb, milk soft serve. And then instead of the Italian, you know, those swirled long fingers that you put into your ice cream sundae, we made a really long cashew baklava finger that we'd put into the top. So I'm really excited about the desserts. Oh my God. Can you guys just open a window in King's Cross and like serve that out the window? Well, maybe. <laughs> um, we might have to. We got to make that machine pay for itself. It was quite an investment. And then I, I think there's probably a dish from each section of the menu like that I love. Like the chicken wings are great from the char grill, the baba ganoush. I love a good hummus a fresh um, with some freshly baked bread. And the uh, mushroom and truffle manaish flies out the door as well. Oh, yeah, that one's really good. I like to finish the interviews asking when you're not eating Middle Eastern food, where where are you eating? <laughs> uh, um, 
I don't get out as much as I used to now the last four years since I had a little one. So my finger's not quite on the pulse as it used to be. But I think I, I tend to go back to places that I'm familiar with. So I probably go back to Brat for the turbot. I go to Kiln for Thai. Smoking Goat for the wings. And I love Barafina, particularly Adelaide Street. I've been eating at, at the Adelaide branch since it opened and it's my favourite. Um, but I'm really fearful because um, most of those restaurants I just mentioned are going to find it really tough with their counter dining spaces to make their models in particular successful. Like Kiln is the smallest yeah. space of all time. And um, Barafina, I think um, Sam Hart was already on ITV a couple of weeks ago, like measuring out the whole two meter thing. And yeah. so, yeah, um, yeah, Barafina and some Thai and, and I'm sure there are others that will pop into my head. Oh, that's awesome. I'm really looking forward to you guys opening up again. I really do think you should open a window and sell that ice cream. We're exploring <laughs> all avenues at the moment, but it's just gentle, slow, considered steps. So, um, you know, hopefully we'll do something at King's Cross in the next few weeks. Oh, great. I'm looking forward Thank to it. Thank you for shining a light on our sector during strange times and uh, being so upbeat and, you know, easy to chat to. So my key takeaways were you don't need to be from the place that you want to cook from. James fell in love with Middle Eastern food and just learnt it by traveling and practicing himself. Also diversifying your revenue streams, kind of like what we heard from Crosstown. Arabica operates retail stalls and restaurants. It meant that he could pivot in a time like this a lot easier. If you're investing in something by yourself, be prepared to lose that money. Basically, invest what you're happy to lose. Finally, I strongly recommend these DIY kits. They're really fun to put together and they taste great. Okay guys, thanks so much and see you next week.